Hi, I'm Phoebe Lover, and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I speak to big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode of the series is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at public-library.online. And if you enjoy the episode, I'd really appreciate if you could like, subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. Thank you for listening. My guest today is the DJ and promoter Louise Chen, who also happens to be my longtime friend. Born and raised in Luxembourg, Louise moved to Paris in her early 20s, where she co-founded the iconic club night Girls, Girls, Girls. Since then, she's built a thriving career, DJing at parties, clubs and festivals worldwide, as well as hosting a regular NTS show, Chen TS, from her new home base of London. Anyone who has heard Louise DJ in a club knows she's guaranteed to fill a dance floor in minutes, and anyone who has had a conversation with her knows she's incredibly astute on topics from politics to fashion to her specialty genre, pop culture. My chats with Louise can and do go anywhere, and this one is just a small, small sampling of her range. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Louise. Hi, Phoebe. How are you doing today? I'm very happy to see you. I'm happy to see you too. I don't see you as much as I'd like, uh, given that we now live in the same city because you're on the road. <laughs> I'm on the road. And also the city is really big. It's huge. I don't think people understand that about London. I think they come here and they think they're going to be hanging out with people all the time. And then you realise that like, actually you only see people who live somewhat near you. Yeah. yeah. Slash are on the same schedule as you. Um Actually, that's something that I've talked about a lot in the salons recently, the, that one on home and then one on family. And they both kind of ended up being conversations about that, actually, which was interesting, just like how much your quality of life can improve when you live near friends and also how difficult that is to do in a city like London. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we don't see each other as much as we like, but we always figure it out. It's true. We're, we're good planners. We're good planners. We are. Um, where have you just got back from? So I was just in Cannes for the film festival. How was that? Um, it was cold and rainy when I was there. Um, and then I was in Berlin the night before. And I think doing two in a row, going from like the club to the airport, the airport to the other venue and very little sleep or, you know, basically just like being run down. Yeah. It killed me. And that's why you can hear it in my voice. I'm a bit, I'm a, I still have a bit of a cold. Yeah. I've just been nursing for like over a week now. Yeah. I mean... So for anyone who may not have heard of you, can you expect, how do you describe what it is that you do these days? Um, so I'm a DJ. Yes. A promoter, because mm -hmm. I put some events on sometimes. Uh, and I just launched a night a couple of weeks ago called Pure Joy, which yes. I'm hoping to do more of. Is that going to be a monthly or? I don't want to, I don't, I don't really know just yet. Yeah. Um, because right now, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get to talk about this uh, in depth, I am transitioning. I do not want to stay a DJ. I don't want to remain a touring DJ. Mm -hmm. And right now it's my, my source of income and revenue, mm -hmm. but it's also what dictates my lifestyle. Mm. And, um, and I'm tired. Yeah, My body is saying no, is rejecting it. Mm -hmm. And I think as much as I love doing it, 
it's just not sustainable. Mm. And and I think my body's known for a long time. Like, yeah. um, <clears throat> it's really depressing to admit this, but when COVID happened and lockdowns were announced, I was relieved. Yeah, I was relieved that I could delay going back on the road and I could just stay at home a little longer. Mm. Um, because deep down inside, I'm a home buddy. I'm an absolute dork. Um, <laughs> I could entertain myself with a stick, but I have enough records, books, DVDs, um, instruments and machines and food to cook to entertain me and distract me from <clears throat> looming illness, death and boredom yeah. for ages. Even when you don't have the juxtaposition of then going and having these intensely sociable, exciting experiences with your job. Yeah. Like the lockdown really made me realize and made me feel very, very confident in how, in my own self entertainment. Like right. it, I, I'm an only child. Yeah. Um, and I was raised m mostly by my mom with my dad, like coming, uh, basically commuting between Taipei and Luxembourg where yeah. I was born and raised. And I just had, I learned to be alone. Mm. And to be happy alone, mm -hmm. very young age, mm. or even to be alone, like to be the only kid with adults all the time, mm. things like that. You just teach yourself how to have fun. We're going to get some a lot of church bells in this recording, but it's okay. It just adds ambience. Okay, guys? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm an only child as well. I relate to that. I can spend a lot of time on my own, but I also realized quite late in my adult life that I'm pretty extroverted. Mm -hmm. And I if I don't have social interaction, I start feeling depressed quite quickly. Um, <laughs> same here, same here. Right. Same here. I, it's all, it's, I need to strike a balance, but I think, you know, I think for, I think it's a myth to assume that DJs are sociable. It's kind right. of the opposite. Right. You know, like I've always been the person that's like a bit awkward at parties. So I'd rather just be in charge of the music. Right. I'd rather have a task. Mm. I'd rather have like a mission mm -hmm. than to, but have like casual conversations and be comfortable with people I don't really know or don't share much in common mm -hmm. as in like passions in common. Mm. Um, I don't really, I think I've, I've taught myself how to do it, mm. but it's not, doesn't come naturally. Right. The natural thing is, oh, I don't know any of you, but I know what you're going to like. It's funny to hear you say that because I think of you as such a socially able person, by which I mean I've watched you interact with a lot of different types of people in a lot of different places, a lot of different settings, and you carry yourself very well. Um, are you saying that that's, are you oh, saying that's you. learned behavior, Louise? Yes, I'm a psychopath. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I do think so to a certain degree. I think like it, there's a lot of behavior that I've, I've learned just from observing, mm. um, being alone mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and from observing and also just from, I think, you know, you grow older, you grow a bit I, I was just really shy for mm -hmm. most of my life. And then I had to learn to not be shy. Like my mom is so extrovert. She's so, like, she go, she, she's so friendly. She talks to everyone. She can spark up conversation with a piece of paper. Yeah. She can literally do this ad eternum. Mm -hmm. And me and my dad are a bit more on the introvert mm -hmm. 
end of the spectrum. Like we're just a bit more like, uh, if I if I do two dinners, then I definitely need three nights in. Right. Do you know okay. what I mean? No, that like, makes sense. That aligns with how I see you as a person, actually. Like you can have spells and then you have to withdraw. Yes. Right, right, like, right. Like I need alone time to process and um, I need to be alone with my thoughts. I need to mm. write. I need like, I'd... I see this now because both my parents are aging. So I notice a lot more of their traits mm, um, in you in me. Yeah. So it's mad, isn't it? You're it's like, crazy. you really do turn into like one or, or both of your parents in some combination. A hundred percent. And so I really see how like, so what's funny is now I also notice how sometimes my dad and I can maybe gang up on my mom, mm. not consciously. Like mm-hmm. we don't actively want to like, bully her Mm -hmm. (laughs) we just we're just very similar and we think alike yeah um and I think we think on the same pace yeah and so sometimes if my dad is launched in a conversation I'll be following him but my mum will be somewhere else entirely yeah and she'll like my dad describes her as like a he describes my mum as a kite a flying kite yeah he says your mom is like a flying kite her mind you think she's gonna go one way yeah but actually she's gonna go the complete opposite you can never tell you can't predict which way it's gonna fly keeps him on his toes <clears throat> keeps him on his toes he loves it he finds it hilarious yeah um and but it's true that like both my dad and i were like so focused so if we're talking about a topic it's not that we're serious but we're like we don't deviate mm-hmm. and then my mom will come in with something completely left field or with a joke and we'll just be looking at her like what right <laughs> excuse me we're debating this topic and we haven't got through all our agenda points yet. exactly 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 we tend to be a bit like that you know um so when did you when would you say that you felt like you started sort of coming out of your shell of shyness well it came with music yeah. like i it's it, music for me was like um i'm realizing same thing as i'm getting older now that i think a lot of uh like my passion for music really came also from lack of vocabulary in my languages Mm, because you speak three four languages um so i speak french mandarin chinese english spanish luxembourgish so a bit of german that's a lot of languages and basically when i was born like i was born into a family where both my parents were speaking four languages at all times to each other right so you know in a traditional sense we would say you have a mother tongue so like the language your mum speaks is the one that dominates yeah. but in my case it didn't really happen until much later like yeah. i didn't have a dominating language right. until i went to school so until i was like five or six and then it became french then it became french yeah but before that, I remember, you know, my parents, if they couldn't find a word in French or in English, they would use it in German mm. or in Chinese, you know, and it was, and it's always been this way. It's always been like this weird mix of like, oh, I'll just, you never know when you're switching languages. You're not even aware that you're doing it because mm. we've, it's just become our way of communicating. But obviously as like a toddler and a child, not only was it confusing at home, but then I'm also growing up in Luxembourg, mm. which is a tiny country that no one, I don't expect anyone to know anything about, but it is a place where people speak the most f- languages per head in really? the world. Wow. 
it's average mean of That's four. That's a good claim to fame. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But it's because it's so small, it knows it doesn't really have a choice. Mm. So the, um, the there's a Luxembourgish dialect mm-hmm. and then French and German. And those three languages were, were in theory, the official languages of the country. Mm-hmm. But now you've also, we've also added English mm-hmm. and the unofficial fifth language is portuguese there's a massive (laughs) just throw that in there yeah there's a massive um lusophone community in luxembourg and it there's been one since the second world war essentially um when they uh you know the they brought in loads of um uh workforce from southern european countries from italy greece and uh portugal to rebuild the north of europe Okay, and also, we're getting a history lesson here, guys. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so do you have a language that you feel you're mo- most yourself in? English now, right? I think I think I think English has always been the one that uh, conveyed how I feel inside with the most accuracy. Interesting. Why did you say that is? Um, well, again, I'm going to sound like a total dork, but here I am. Um, <clears throat> the English is actually one of the most flexible languages in. Yeah. in the world yeah. it's also why it's so easy to learn and to mm-hmm. adopt mm-hmm. when you're a foreigner yeah um it and also because it's a nominal language which makes which gives it its flexibility mm-hmm. it it being a nominal language means that any noun can be also transformed into a verb into an action right so it means it also means that you can create new actions you can describe new mm. actions like to google right 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 <clears throat> yeah yeah i saw i don't know you saw that clip that went viral uh, semi-viral i don't know maybe it's just in my algorithm i'm gonna i wish i knew the author very famous i think he's a spanish author older and he was talking about um exactly that just the uh, the fact that you know in latin languages there's generally only one word to describe any sort of verb but in english you've got like five different nuanced variations have you got it on i your saved phone? it as well who was it um i'm trying to i'm trying to find Louise, it but, oh, um, i shouldn't even guess it's is it maruda I think so. I a very famous author. Yeah. And I, I just thought it was a really, I'd never really thought about it. Because to my shame, I only speak like basic conversational, a little bit of French, a little bit of Spanish, which is appalling, to be honest. And it's, it's a great, I think it's a great, it should be a great source of shame in this country that we are, very few people are bilingual. Because in many other countries, people are bilingual. Yeah, I, th- I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you don't have to do anything, but I, I definitely... I I wouldn't know any other way. Like my only way of thinking the way my brain is wired is to always try and understand. Right. I think that's kind of been the 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 essential point that I've figured out about myself is yeah. that I think I can't help my I can't shut it off. Mm-hmm. If I'm if I'm exposed, if I go to Germany even though I don't, I never learnt German. I can't I can't shut it off. My mm. my brain needs to understand what's going on yeah same and so and it's and with music it's the same I think where so to answer your question I think my the the dominant language became music for me right it became easier for me to communicate using pop culture references and music Mm. and convey what I wanted to say Mm -hmm. than to try and use words it always felt you trying to use French words Mm. or Chinese words always felt like a struggle or like I was 
or that it was always a bit off key. Like it's not exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. I can't figure out. It always felt like I didn't have the vocabulary or I thought, or that I was just a bit, I remember <laughs> describing it as feeling a little constipated verbally. Right. Like where I, I used to really feel, uh, I remember going to school. So in the, when I eventually went to school and French became my dominant mm-hmm. language because it was a re- European language, uh, it was called a European school. And so every language from every European country had their own section. So mm-hmm. the kids I was at school with were Spanish, Danish, British, I like literally every country. And I, in my school, I had like 11 languages mm-hmm. spoken at all times. So by the time you're a teenager, you make friends who are from every European country. Yeah. And, and so you had to, in that school, you also had to learn like a foreign, what they call a vehicular language. So in the European institutions, they call those uh, English, German, and French are the three languages you're supposed to speak one of them in order to like navigate others. Others. Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to speak at least one foreign language. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so, so that was from like kindergarten on. So at age five, I was, I was already lingually confused because at home I spoke, I heard French, Chinese, English, German. Then I was even more lingually confused because I went to kindergarten that was in Luxembourgish. And then I was even more confused because then I went to school at five and then it was all of a sudden French 24 seven and everyone around me, it felt like everyone else was good at French. And I felt like an alien. Mm. I really felt like, uh, I don't know how to speak this language as well as all these people. Like, I don't know how to, where do they get this vocabulary from? Like Mm -hmm. what? I felt, it really felt like I felt crippled. Yeah. And it's only with... And it was easier for me to then bond and communicate when I was using, yeah, cultural artifacts, like what movies I was into, yeah. food and music. And music, I think for me became a language because also just in my whole family, like on my dad's side uh, in Taiwan, my aunt was a singer actress. My other aunt was a TV show producer mm-hmm. and her husband used to be an actor, singer. So like everyone was sort of in like entertainment. Mm-hmm. So everyone cared about entertainment. Mm. So everyone had like loads of CDs and movies. Like it was, um, it was very normalized, right. like to have cultural products around at all times. Yes. And that is very much. That's, that's the life I recreated yeah, for I mean, myself. We're sitting in Louise's home, which is definitely cultural product HQ <laughs> of London. <laughs> yeah. I, I always think of like um, that E.T. scene where Elliot and E.T. meet and e, and Elliot straight away is like so gassed. He's like, come to my bedroom. I'm going to show you all my toys. Yeah. <laughs> and it feels very much like that when I have people over at my house. I'm like, Here's welcome my to my museum of stuff. Yes. I mean... <laughs> Like, so you've got the records, you've obviously, your t-shirt collection is T-shirt in, collection. What are your other specialties of cultural collecting? Books, books. scenes. Yeah. Um, uh, CDs. I actually kept all my CDs. Wow. And I love them. I will just never get rid of I them. I just threw mine away. 
sold them to me oh i should have i think you probably would have had them all to be honest louise they weren't particularly niche um yeah it's interesting i think we talked about this a little while ago in relation to that film worst person in the world which you recommended to me um i listened to a follow-up podcast on movie with um what's the what's the director's name joe kim trio exactly and just obviously one of the things that that film explores is sort of like the tension between gen x and millennials and just you know analog versus digital culture i feel like your appetite for cultural products skews slightly older than your age how do you think that started well so i it's funny because i always describe myself as a millennial that's gen x leaning yeah because when i was younger i was always hanging out with the older kids right and the and like my mentors whatever like Yeah. yeah that's they're my mentors they're not whatever they're my mentors um I met them when I was like maybe 14. Yeah. And, you know, they they were already 18, 19. So whatever I deemed cool didn't come from people that were younger than me. It came Mm -hmm. from people that were older than me. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought. I was like, oh, my God, you know, they're so cool. I want to be like them. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think... Maybe if I had younger brothers and sisters, I maybe I'd be more of like a stricto sensu traditional millennial of my generation yeah. of my time. Yeah. But because I just hung out with all the people all the time, mm. I yeah, they just be it, it. It's just what I. It's it was that skewed my value system right. and therefore my consumer habits and therefore like what became my yeah. have my own habits yeah it's it's really fascinating i don't i don't think i know anyone of our age who has that same appetite um for collecting i mean yeah. or, or we have some kind of cusp variation on it yeah. or we started off being like that or as i said i just threw all my cds away and i was like to be honest it didn't feel i didn't feel any type of way about yeah. it um i don't I am quite ruthless with getting rid of personal possessions. So that's maybe, that's maybe to do with something else, but I don't know. I, do you have any more thoughts on like, I spoke, what did that film bring up for you in, in terms of that conversation? I mean, so that, in that movie, that conversation really shook me because it, first of all, it was like, what are you doing in my brain? Leave, please. Right. How do you dare you expose me like this? But who were you? Were you the girl <clears throat> or the guy? Or a bit I was of the both? guy. You oh, were the I guy. Mean, I was, I'm a bit of both, but mm. I think I am the guy. I'm the guy who sees um, its own inevitable irrelevance right. coming, arriving. Interesting. And, um, <clears throat> and he doesn't, he can't, decide and it's not up to him anyway to decide whether one way was better than the other Mm. like if his way is better than what the way of the new generation yes all he knows is that he doesn't feel like he can contribute Mm. in the same way he doesn't have he can't have the same role in society as he used to yeah because the things that he loves and has invested most of his life collecting and cherishing have now a sale value of zero. Mm. And that obviously really, really resonated with me because that's something that I've been sort of angry about and vocal about for over a decade now, you know, when I used to work in the music industry and when we got to piracy and mp3s i just saw it all coming and like 
it's horrible when you're in your early twenties and you're a cute girl and no one, no one, um, will listen to you seriously. No one will take you seriously or hear the gravitas of what you have to say. Mm -hmm. They only see you as like, oh, you're just angry and cute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pinch your cheek. Yeah. But actually I I had foresight and I was very clear and it was very business driven and I saw it all coming and now we're here and everyone's what shocked. Uh, when, can you can you specify what exactly you're referring to? I'm referring to you know to obviously the monopoly of DSPs, streaming culture, um, Spotify with musicians as opposed to writers. We don't have guilds. We can't unionize. We can't strike. Yeah. We don't have unemployment. And when a musician doesn't work no one fucking knows about it. Yeah. When, you know, yeah. when a musician is struggling or is poor, no one knows about it. Mm -hmm. Like it makes no noise in statistics. Mm -hmm. So for politicians, we amount to nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, we have no leverage. Yeah. So what's interesting is now I'm looking at like the writer's strike in America, almost like a, a swan, like a finally, Mm. where fi like finally something might change out of this because mm. they actually have sort of like political leverage yeah that simple so le like political and industrial I guess you know in the UK it's different than in like say France in the UK music as a cultural art artifact and as an art form is respected mm -hmm. is admired and is valued mm -hmm. I mean some of the richest British people are musicians. Right. Um, so you would, so they see as an asset and like a soft power that is worth investing in and yeah. protecting, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I moved here. Cause I was right. like, well, you've, at least you've got this priority, right? So. Yeah. yeah. Everything else is not so good. But yeah, I mean, music, obviously music, the, the British music industry is one of its biggest global exports. Um, so what, where, where you're at now, I guess when you're not in the industry or paying much attention, yeah. to be totally frank, whilst I, I hear what you're saying and I, you know, I, I already begin to see the effect of, for example, the streaming platforms on the way that music production works and yeah. artists have to basically be TikTok stars and all these, you know, all the effects of it. What's your sort of greater anxiety for the future? So... My growing anxiety, I don't, I'm not really anxious about the future, mm. to be honest. I just, it's, and that's what I mean by like, it re really resonated with me in that movie is like, yeah. I'm not anxious for the future. I think, you know, every generation will go through its own shit, mm -hmm. um, good or bad. Yeah. And will keep whatever they loved, yeah. you know. Um, there's some things of Y2K that I really was hoping to never see again. And yet here we are. Here we are. So... Um, but I will say though, um, I think the thing that I was the most worried about were already happened, you know, it's like the monopolies of majors and just the, just the general <clears throat> aggregation of power yeah. in the hands of very, very few. Mm -hmm. I hate it. I hate yeah. it here. Yeah. I hate it here. And I, I didn't like it even when I was 14, 15, you mm. know, like. Um, I just feel like maybe in the nineties, it was a lot more culturally, um, like there was actually some pushback, if mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there was a mainstream, of course, yes, but there was an actual alternative. Mm -hmm. Like when we met underground, it wasn't just an aesthetics. Yeah. It was an actual ethos mm -hmm. and it was an actual alternative network of an industrial network. Yeah. 
And, um, and it was also, you know, the fact that it was underground wasn't just so that it was economically more viable for punks, but yeah. it was also protection, you know, right. like I think about this, for example, for club culture, yeah. like broadcasting, like, you know, 10 years of broadcasting DJ sets and clubs has made it that now there is no more underground. Underground is just a filter you apply. Right. It's not a thing. I don't think kids who have 17 today mm. understand what it really means. Like yeah. they don't understand that actually, you know what, like <clears throat> um, queer folk, you ha used to have to live in secret and in hiding. Um, black and brown people didn't feel safe. Mm -hmm everywhere so they had to create their own world mm -hmm. like people that didn't believe in capitalism didn't want to take part wanted to live an alternative life had to create their own world and that's what we mean by the underground like mm -hmm. it was it's it's do it yourself yeah it's this idea and not just this idea it's a lifestyle yeah. it's a lifestyle choice and yeah. then now the now underground isn't that much of a choice it's just something that you mm -hmm. that it's a commodity mm -hmm. it's been commodified and <clears throat> And all I can say is I can, all I can do is mourn it, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I don't, I don't think it's coming back. I think it'll come back in a different, in a, a different form. It'll take mm. a different shape the same mm. way that now, you know, one could argue that punk is dead, but techno is the new punk. Right. Like the things are always, things are always morphing, mm -hmm. but I don't. And that's what I mean. Like I relate to that movie because I don't, I don't, I don't feel mad or sad about any of the changes. All I know is I can't play the same role yes. anymore. And mm. I don't think I want to. Mm. I think that's the difference is that I don't feel like if I, I don't feel like I would meet my audience for much longer. Really? Yeah. Um, what you mean as, as like club crowds get younger? Club crowds, but even just in music, like, you know, I think for like in music in general, you know, like I, I started off like the, let's just say the last 15 years have been kind of like the, the defined, def, have defined my career. Yeah. Um, as a DJ promoter, uh, broadcaster and producer. Mm hmm. But before that, I worked in the music industry as a journalist, as a label manager, as an independent distribution. Like I, all those jobs, like I, I, I know how this industry runs and how it functions and what, how it's incentivized. Yeah. And, and I think for a good decade, I could have actually been like potentially one of the best 10 A&Rs in the world. I'm mm -hmm. not going to lie. Like... I really think so of myself. I really think that like I had the foresight to book some acts that have, have blown up since mm -hmm. I had the foresight to say certain acts were going to blow up and be the biggest and everything happened. And I was always right. Yeah. I just, I was a woman in a world that didn't want women in those rooms, yeah. you know, like maybe things are changing now. And so I just hope that maybe there's like a, a mini, a mini me that's like 19 now and wants to get into a and mm. or even someone like Cheska, like Lil C. Yeah. She's, she's an amazing A&R, but she has the benefit of just being, a, a, being like a decade younger than me. So yeah. she can, she managed to like push, push through, um, 
certain things that I, I couldn't push through, you yeah. know, the, the only way for me to, like, I couldn't push through them. I had to create my own real, I had to create my own yeah. alternative world. Yeah. And so what that world looked like, it was girls, girls, girls parties. It was okay. Well, men won't give me attention. Men won't give me the work. I'll create it for myself mm. and I'll create it for other women and I'll create it for women that I admire and other people I admire. Mm. And it's always been this idea of like creating just like a, uh, creating synergies and just virtual circles like mm. this idea that how I think for the longest time music was like a language to me then it became a currency when I started becoming using it to like bond and befriend people mm-hmm. and now it's this thing that I absolutely love but that is just a point of entry mm. to meet people that I'm gonna love mm-hmm. if that makes sense and I yeah. think that's just been kind of the journey for me it's been I am I have a lot of feelings and a lot of things inside. I don't know how to get them out. Music and pop culture artifacts help me do that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make it my mission to travel the world, to f- go find them, to fetch it and bring it back so I can have the most vocabulary in my toolbox. Yeah. Now my toolbox is overflowing. Yeah. And, and I also, I just think now music isn't enough for me. I have more things to say. I have mm-hmm. more things to write. Yeah. Like I think now I'm, now that I, now that, now, I've, now that I've established, I have a dominant language and it's English. I feel I can, I can do that. I can take on writing in English. I can take on like more radio, like more broadcasting, like, cause I have, I have my NTS show that I love doing and yeah. I'd love to do more. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it's this it's funny because if you listen back to the first few shows I did mm-hmm. I'm so shy on the microphone I'm like <laughs> I don't know how to speak I feel so like out of place and I think that's how you know that's how I felt maybe the first 15 years of my life right that's how I felt and then gradually you'll start hearing me more and more and kind of gain more confidence in my own voice mm. and then and confidence in knowing you're going to meet your audience, you yeah. know, there's that too. It's like the more shows I did, the more chat room debates I joined, yeah. the more like other shows I listened to and jumped in the chat room, the more I met the NTS community, the more I felt comfortable to be myself mm-hmm. and to share more than just the music, also my ideas. Do you think coming to London has helped bring all that out of you? Yeah. I think London, I think London has like, um, really revealed my, uh, me to myself, Mm -hmm. um, in the sense that I feel a lot freer. First of all, I feel like there's more vocabulary that I can use. So that's just that on this pure linguistic, um, plane, like that's already, that's a that's already a big shift for me it's like oh but then also like the people around me in London like you um I have amazing women I have amazing friends and everyone's really impressive <laughs> no but you know but I'm, I really mean it it's yeah. like I, I haven't everyone is impressive and there's ev- there's not a lot like there's a lot of support yeah people like I think life being really hard here and same in New York no but it's true like it's so hard that we give a lot more Mm. to each other Mm -hmm. right it's a lot less about what you have but a lot more about what you have to give Mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah it does um and 
and I and I really feel it. I really felt it. Like mm. coming here, it felt like the first time I went to New York. You know, it felt like oh wow. If I tell them I love them, they're gonna tell me they love me back like tenfolds. Right. And the same energy is kind of here. It's like, I love London. And the more I say I love London, the more London loves me back. That's interesting because I think so many people who come to London have find it quite a hostile place to, I mean, I obviously, because I grew up in London, I don't really have much perspective on that. But people have told me that they found London very difficult to permeate. Whereas New York, I mean, New York's a really fucking hard place to live, but there's something about the openness of American culture that mm. I think at the very least you're going to find people to talk to you know you're going to get invited out i i mean i guess as you said i just as you have acknowledged you sort of stepped into a community with nts and also you know your job is literally to play at parties and be in nightlife venues where you're above average likely going to meet new people in so maybe that's played a played a role but i know you've been coming back and forth here for years regardless yeah so, because, so i used to live here as a student yeah. in 2008 and then my first job in 2009 yeah. and then i moved back to paris in 2010 for a job yeah i never intended to leave yeah and especially not this long yeah um but uh i think that's also why i came back so much i had like really strong i've always had really strong ties with here for the last, you know, 15, 16 years. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the thing that really, it's the music thing, you know, yeah. it's just like in Paris for me to make friends, it took for me to work in music, to take music job internships in order to meet people that loved music as much as I do. Mm. In London, I could befriend a cabbie just talking about music. Yeah, Everyone here loves it it's in the air like yeah. and it's not just club culture it's not just club music it's bands yeah. it's glastonbury yeah. you know it's like i think culture in general here is revered it's almost it's respected it's almost a religion it, there's mm. something um i find almost spiritual mm. where the why do you think so many like foreigners move to london for their music career mm. you know or to jo join a band or whatever. It is a bit of a mecca, you know, like a, there's radio culture, pirate radio culture, club culture, dance culture, sound system culture. Like, let's not even get into like the Beatles, Abbey Road, the studio culture, mm -hmm. sound engineers. Um, like at every level for every job, mm. festival organizer, like whatever you want, like there are the best yeah. in the industry. Yeah even in media, music yeah. media, best writers, mm -hmm. but best documentaries, BBC, like the, there's just, there's just a curiosity that mm -hmm. never dries out here. Mm -hmm. When in France, it feels like. No, no, <laughs> just no, just no, the, no. I think maybe the curiosity for music died out when the iPod died. I think I've always been conscious of how important London's music culture is because I left for so long yeah. and like looking back I mean, and also like you, you know, had an above average interest in music, although I didn't make it my career and did, you know, bits of music kind journalism of. and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, music's really important to me. Like music's my music's the top three thing in my life. Yeah. yeah, no, but I mean, you know, you were a music writer. Definitely, yeah. you definitely ten, 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 ten. Yeah, it's very, very oh, important. God, that was to hard me. to say. It's a huge thing, huge thing. I can't even understand how it couldn't be. Like, I don't 
what, what people who don't listen to music, what? I just don't even get that. But um, aside from the personal aspect of it, you know, watching how London's music culture evolved in the years while I was away, the way that it endlessly regenerates mm-hmm. is this. like, I mean, just such a source of pride. Yeah. It's so good. And yeah. it's so good in every genre. It's yeah. not just, it's, and I think that's the, the secret here. The secret source is that I think Londoners believe that more is more. Yeah. They don't believe in less is more. Parisians really believe in less is more. They've made it their whole industry, the luxury industry, on less is more. Right. Let's make that shit five pieces, super expensive, Mm. and call it aspirational. Exclusivity. Exactly. And so they don't understand this. They have no access to this mentality. Their brain is just wired to think there can only be one. Mm. There can only be one king. There can only be one president. Mm. There can only be one unicorn. There can only be one Instagram superstar. There can only be one rapper. Like, I don't think they understand. They can even see that that's their behavior. I can see it because I'm not French. I didn't grow up there. Like, Mm. it's foreign to me. I see it as a whole other thing, a whole other beast the same way I moved to London. And I see it as this whole other beast that is like... Nowhere is really my home, so I'm always analyzing shit mm. all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not comparing, but I'm really analyzing. I'm trying to figure out where certain behaviors come from. And, you know, the fact that in the UK you have people living in house shares for so long, but also as a student, you live a communal life a lot more than in France, for example. Right. And that communal life is also the thing that pushes you outside. Mm-hmm. Because in order to have alone time, you won't go home to have alone time. You'll yeah. go out to have alone time. Yeah. And in France, it's the opposite, yeah. you know? So they don't have a culture of going out. They have a cu- culture of going out to the restaurant. Yeah. They have a culture of going out to the wine bar. They have a culture of going out to like the cinema or museum or like something like that. But they don't have pop culture you know Mm. it took me do do you know how long it took me to realize that pub was actually short for public public house (laughs) i didn't even realize well i mean that's fair enough yeah but you know it's the same way you apply the word public to your library Mm. you know i i really believe in that too it's like having that third space where people get to commune together Mm -hmm. even if they're strangers even if they don't talk together but just to be in that third space Mm -hmm. that we all missed during covid Mm. like it's become really apparent that it plays a massive role in the way people envision the world Mm. like i think you know and i I think i would also just see this because i was an only child so i didn't get a lot of that you know Mm. that felt like that feels like wow to me you know yeah It, it feels really really like enticing yeah And at the same time, it's like, it's a whole other life that I'll never live, you know, maybe in the next one. Mm. I I don't know. I like, I I loved being a student here. I loved being a student. There was, it it felt like a great equalizer. Mm -hmm. Like, even though, you know, paying for your school is obviously expensive and not everyone can afford it and all those things. Like the fact that we were all living pretty skin skin like everyone's skin everyone's just got like a plan b you know everyone's just like oh well we'll just have drinks at the house or whatever it felt like um yeah it felt like an equalizer or like when you go to a club it feels like an equalizer it feels like you have those moments where 
it's not about your status. It's not about your name. It's mm-hmm. not about your class. You're just sharing certain spaces yeah. at the same level as everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think British people love that. I think that's why they have a passion for festivals, for concerts. Football. Football. No, but, it, you know, literally, like, the list goes on. And I think mm-hmm. it really comes from this communal culture, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because I think a lot of people wouldn't say that Britain, especially now is a culture that particularly values the communal perhaps it's just the government doesn't value the communal and that's why lots of people in this country are currently miserable yeah because it is it you know obviously that that government got voted in someone wanted that someone wanted their values but for many people it's a misalignment with as you say i mean like the public institutions of the uk are the the core of our national identity the nhs for being the prime example And like when that's under threat, it's like a it's like a, a, a identity crisis for the country. You know, pray pray to God that they get voted out soon. Um, although the damage yeah. is already you know considerable and won't be easy to to reverse. But yeah, I find that really interesting that you've identified that. And I think when I moved to the US, I had that impulse to sort of like create. Th- you know, when I started doing the WW Club, I think it was born out of the same impulse as everything I've ever done, which was wanting to to make those spaces that aren't necessarily commercialized and and just yeah create create space but i think you're right by saying like the i think the the i think the key is it is that it's there's a culture of communal yeah it's not reflected in the politics but i think there's a culture yeah you're right i think there's this it's just in people's minds it is not weird this, to, is the be- this is the way to live. Yes. Yeah. And for a French person to be like, what? I have to share a roast? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, it sounds silly, but you yeah. know, like Sunday roast is a thing. It's still yeah. a thing here. It's yeah. still a ritual. It's still yeah. a tradition. And the point of a roast is usually to have to share one piece of meat, piece of meat yeah. amongst many. Mm-hmm. So it's also a communal meal in mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. And for French people, you know, that's now become quite foreign, I think. Mm. Um, and I don't blame French culture. I just blame capitalism, you know? I think, like, capitalism has just pushed everyone to live with this idea that everything's rationed for one person or mm. for two or for four. And if you don't fit in those boxes, well, sorry. Yeah. And the, and that's what I mean about, like, the, you know, being not nostalgic, but being it, feeling like at least in the Cold War, there was a war of two ideologies, meaning right. there was at least one pushing back. Yeah. Now it just feels like everyone's accepted capitalism as being the only option de facto, even if imperfect, and then just try and figure out a, the best version of it that works for you. Yeah. But at least like in the 80s, there was at least this idea that, well, there are alternatives. There are, there's an alternative called communism and loads of countries are actually into it. Yeah. You know? It's like that, you read that book, Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. Do you know that book? I mean, I have it. I haven't read it. I'm not going to yeah. lie. It's, not yet. Yeah. I mean, he's like your little Gen X hero. Yeah. I feel like your anti-capitalist <laughs> Gen X hero. But that's Sorry. exactly what that's about. That, that you know, mm. a function of capitalism is to make you feel that there is no alternative. Yes. And, and, and also the what you might find particularly interesting around that book, if you ever get around to reading it, is that he sort of argues that the primary vehicle for people to accept it is um, like TV and film and pop culture. 
it normalizes it to an extent where people can't really imagine any possibilities beyond it. Yeah, exactly. Because it weaves the narratives, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's just movies, TV, pop culture is just an extension of like human expression and communication. And it goes all the way back to like, you know, prehistoric times. Like it's the human tradition of like oral storytelling, Mm -hmm. um, but expanded, right. And broadcast to like, Mm way 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 bigger numbers Mm -hmm. but we're just following this tradition and by only telling one specific narrative and repeating it eternally yeah we're creating we're creating a story that is that is just singular mm-hmm. when in fact there there are pl- the stories are plural mm-hmm. and the same way people are multifaceted you know like it's reductive to objectify women and men it's reductive to it's reductive to think that like race defines your experience and that it's going to be the same all across the board mm-hmm. you know i find for example i i find it reductive to think that like the African-American experience is the same as the British black experience. You know, I wouldn't know. I'm no expert. I'm just, I'm just saying from like, just from hanging out with your friends, you're like, well, your experience of the, the the experiences of life are so, 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 so diverse. Mm -hmm. Why are we sticking to just one narrative? Why are we trying to like dictate? And why are we trying to leave this as a legacy? Mm -hmm. I think that's my biggest problem is that now in the age of, you know, streaming where we don't have artifacts that are physical anymore, you know, mm-hmm. back to the Joachim Trier movie. It means that we can also rewrite history all the mm-hmm. time. It's not become this thing that's fixed, that's yeah. crystallized, and therefore it's not a legacy thing anymore. It's not something that you think, oh, if I write this article in 50 years, someone will know that this happened and it was like this and no, da 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 just get wiped. No. I mean loads of media music media sites have recently gone down right or like they've just been white archives have been wiped from the internet and that's like 15 years of I mean my six years six best years of my life on MySpace <laughs> have been completely deleted you know yeah. and like I had some like amazing messages in there that I wow. definitely oh wish I could imagine going through your MySpace inbox right now oh I'd, <laughs> I'd pay I'd pay, I tried to get back into my MySpace a couple of years ago. It was just not, it was... My profile's just gone. It got wiped. Mine was there, but it wasn't the same. And then, I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, you're totally, you're totally right. So anyway, I just wanted to bring it back around to where we started. We talking a bit about your transition. Yes, so my transition. So the, so, you know, that's kind of what you would... It was a great question because, yes, indeed, I don't think I want to play the same role anymore, you know, in music, but in culture at large. I think I'm ready to not be a DJ anymore. I'm ready to not like I have stories to tell and they require more than music. Mm -hmm. And also I on a more intimate and personal level, it's something that I feel has was really taboo for me to say or voice out loud when I lived in Paris. Mm -hmm. But after two years, almost three in London, Mm. I feel so much freer. I feel like, and I think, you know, that's, that was your question. Like if London has helped at all with my self-expression and, and how free I feel and how my priorities have changed and they have, like, I think now I get, I get to be, really honest with myself and I get to say it out loud and the thing that I have been 
neglecting or avoiding or repressing deep down inside is that I really want to be a mum. Mm-hmm. Like I really want to meet someone and have a have a child or multiple if I can. And it's something I've always wanted. But I think it's also just a lifestyle thing. You know, right. it's like I I really loved the last 15 years. I don't want the next 15 to be the same. Yeah. Um, I've become incredibly transient. Yes. Um, for my career. Yes. And I hate it here. Like I... I I recently I'm going to quote another movie. I'm sorry, Go but I, it. it's a proof of concept. Pop culture is my love language. She's not lying. <laughs> I went to the screening of um, a movie called Past Lives. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it. Yeah, Celine, uh, Celine Song. I think she wrote it and mm. directed it, and it's her first movie. Yeah. Um, but it's the story of a young girl in Korea, mm-hmm. and her parents are migrating to America. Uh, no, to Canada. Sorry. Um, not long after the film starts, basically. And we see her at school and she's got like a bit of a crush boyfriend thing going on. And so before they leave, the mom is like, do you want to go on? You know what? You're going to go on a date with this boy before you leave. I'm going to let you have that. And they have a day and then the day ends and she leaves and they don't really get to say goodbye. And then fast forward 12 years later, she's an adult in her 20s, just moved to New York and she's trying to be a playwright. And of course she goes on Facebook and finds him. They reconnect, da, da, da. And it's, so it's the story of, of what could have been Mm -hmm. basically. Mm. But it's also, I love this description of the movie is like, she described it apparently as being, um, what if we treated people in rom-coms like adults what if they actually spoke to each other like adults and made mm. adult decisions mm-hmm. instead of always being babied into like romance? Mm. And anyway, I don't want to spoil the movie, but at one point- no, I really want to see it now. <laughs> it's really no good. Um, but at one point she has a conversation with her. She has a conversation with this man who's now back in her life in New York and Mm -hmm. they're just basically being tourists together and catching up. And he says to her, you were always supposed to leave Korea. Mm -hmm. Like you're too brilliant. Like you were always too big, too great for Korea. You always had to leave. To me, you'll be, you'll always be the one that left that leaves. Mm. But to him, you're the one that stays. Mm. That broke me that like, cause for multiple reasons, obviously this movie resonated with me and my own experience of like moving around of language, foreign languages. Yeah. Um, and feeling like it's a part of your, like basically reckoning with your own identity, plural identities. Mm. Um, she, but this bit really broke me because it launched me into thinking I'm always the one leaving and I don't even, I can't even think of one person to whom I am the one that stays. Mm. The closest thing I want to say to me being the person that stays would have been my ex, Jeremy, from like 2014. Mm-hmm. But even then I ended up leaving anyway. Mm. <clears throat> so it, it anyway it launched me into this like self-questioning where I started thinking like, can I even stay? Like, do I even know how to do this? Mm. Um, I'm not even sure at this point. Mm-hmm. 
But then I started analyzing my parents because obviously you repeat patterns of behavior. And my mom is like the true nomad of the family. Like she's the one that splits herself between, she's been living in Luxembourg for over 40 years, mm -hmm. but she cannot be there full time. Like mm -hmm. she, she could, she just, she just like emotionally can't not divide herself in a million pieces What to be. What did she do when you were a small child? Can't take me everywhere with her. So she'd just stay there during <clears throat> school time and then. Exactly. So I would just be in Luxembourg like Monday to Friday and then Saturday morning we'd get in the car, go to Alsace, see my grandparents, go to Paris, see my aunt. Hashtag relatable. Yeah. I can see myself doing that. No, seriously. Yeah. And then, and then summers or like long holidays, go to Taiwan, see my dad. Like yeah. it was always about like, it's funny because now I see this as like family distribution. Like mm -hmm. it's yeah. like you have family everywhere. So you just, you just take time to go see them and be with them. But I'm obviously I realized like later, I was like, wow, it's just, she just never, but she never stayed in Luxembourg. So how could she possibly build herself a Luxembourg family or community mm. if she's never invested in her life there? Yeah. She only started investing in her life there when I started going to school mm. and she was obliged to mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. Because all, all of a sudden I'm like, I want to stay. I want to go to my friend's birthdays. Yeah. I want to, you know, I want to have friends. I want to have a life. I don't want to be divided that way. Mm. Like you can split yourself, but you can't split me. But here I am. I'm doing exactly that. I'm splitting mm. myself a million ways. My friends here, my friends in New York, my yeah. family in Luxembourg, in Taiwan, in Paris. And like, it's, um, it's exhausting. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm just tired of that life. And I think I'm ready to root myself here, mm -hmm. hopefully in London. And build like I don't want to live that kind of horizontal distribution that never it amounts to beautiful friendships and relationships and it definitely feels like the world is really small to me like mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like the world is big and scary mm. and daunting it feels like I could live anywhere yeah feels like at this point I could move in, to another country I'd probably yeah. find my people Same. but and I think you know that was deep down inside probably like the thing that I was craving for when I launched into music as like a late teenager and became obsessed and decided to make it my life's mission yeah. to organize the music I love <laughs> um, <clears throat> and keep finding more, keep collecting more. But the, the, I, th you know, I think at the time it was like, no, I just need more of this music thing. because it's my currency to make friends. Yeah. And then, have like going on the lookout for more of this music thing made me meet loads of music lovers who yeah. then became my friends naturally and now I have I feel like I've collected so many friends everywhere mm -hmm. and I just miss them if I don't go visit them you know I mean you know that I relate to everything you're saying so hard like <laughs> and maybe not the music as currency part but like everything else I mean just like it's been It's, such, must, it's gonna sound like a very privileged say, but it's been one of the biggest struggles of the last maybe five years of my life is like trying to reconcile myself to the fact that maybe for my life to move forward, it can't look like that anymore. I, I would say maybe you've got to a point where you're a bit more exhausted by it than I was. I say for me, it got cut by the pandemic, that yeah. lifestyle of like, yeah, I mean, I lived in one place, but I moved around constantly, as mm. you know, maybe not quite as much as you, but like, a lot, yeah. a lot. I was on the move all the time. 
again, loved collecting friends in different places, always had this pull of like, oh, I want to go and see my friends there. I want to have that vibe. I want to be with my LA friends. There's, you know, I love that vibe that they're on. Yeah. I love my New York friends vibe. Like, and then of course, always interspersed with, I miss London so much. I miss my friends in London. Yeah. Da, da, da. And, you know, for, for various reasons, I don't really live like that anymore. Certainly not anywhere near as much as I used to. And I'm not going to lie, it's been hard for me. Like, mm -hmm. because so much of my identity was based on being that person partly and partly just because I genuinely did enjoy it yeah um but I would very much agree that you know as you you fully know you don't need me to tell you this you've worked it out like you to to get to the next bit if you want that next mm. bit and we know people who don't want the next yeah. bit they just want to live like that forever yeah. and that's good for them happy for them but if you want to have like a different bit <laughs> it requires a sacrifice of certain elements and then and then on top of that there's just this idea that when you get there maybe you don't want it anymore you mm. know like it's funny because it, the the realization that i wanted to quit djing happened to me it was it was bubbling i think but i wasn't really letting it out and mm. then i think we saw each other that night it was before i went to dj print works and you did you come out with Rada? No, no, I wasn't no. there that night. Um, but uh, just before going to Printworks, I realized I was like, I've got actual, my good friends are coming, so I'm not alone. Yeah. Like, I think it's funny because it's like the last decade I've spent so much energy dreaming up like I was like, my dream is just, you know, to to be such a good DJ that all my friends want to come out to see me and they want to come to the party and I don't have to like oversell. I don't have to like sell anything mm -hmm. anymore mm -hmm. or things Mission like that. Accomplished. We're finally here, but now I'm like, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. <clears throat> well, that's um, such as human nature. No, but you know, it just, it creeped up on me. I just realized I was like, wow, I have all my friends coming. I'm playing early. Like I, I don't have that many gigs. I, I should, it's a massive Sim symbolically it's massive to play print works for a dj you know yeah. it's a big thing i should be so happy i'm just gonna go play my favorite disco tunes like why am i so reticent yeah. why do i have no inspiration drive or desire whatsoever to go it was like it wasn't even like anxiety it was just this like acute awareness of a feeling that I can't shake, yeah. that this isn't it for me anymore. Like it is not what excites me. It is not yeah. what stimulates me. It is not the thing I look forward to yeah. with anticipation. Yeah. It's, um, it's not giving me what, which is not compatible anymore. You know, it's just literally one of those realizations. It's, it's like, you know, it's like any relationship, right? You can, it can, everything can be fine. And you know, you can like, you don't need to be each other's throats, but you can come to a point where you wake up and you go, do you know what? This, this isn't is, for me. This has run its course. And that's how it, and really that was how it felt. And, you know, and I think like back to what we were saying earlier about the industry, about Spotify, streaming culture, uh, the lack of like, you, you know, alternatives and da da da. Like it's, it's all those pointers, like all the pointers are going in a direction that makes me feel less and less included yes. or less and less like interested. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, maybe it's just not it for me anymore. Yeah. And like, that's, and that's, that's what I, and that exactly. And that's what I mean by like, 
I resonated with the guy in the movie right. of the worst person in the world because he's not mad or sad about it. He's, he's just coming to the realization of his own irrelevance mm -hmm. and that's fine. Like he's obviously at this point in the movie, he's not like alive and well. No, but he is grappling with his own mortality <clears throat> as well, which I think adds, the, adds a layer. But adds a layer of drama. Yeah. But in my case, I'm alive, I'm well. I have a promising, I still have a promising future And I still have options and I don't have a kid yet. don't have a partner yet. Was my oyster, you know, why do like, why should I stay in a situation where I feel trapped, exhausted, mm -hmm. run down and yeah, generally like that is keeping me from pursuing the thing that I want the most in life you have to let go of something in life often to yeah you have to shed the weight whatever that looks like for you and um it doesn't even you know often it's not actually something that you hate or mm. you know something that's necessarily bad for you or toxic for you it's just something that as you say is just not serving way how you want to live anymore and you've identified it and i'm excited for your next chapter mm. Yeah, it's like it's, I finally want to be the person that stays. I have no doubt you'll achieve that. <laughs> I hope you'll still DJ for the homies sometimes. Always, <laughs> always. You know, always DJ, always DJ for the homies. Um, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep doing the pure joys. I think. Okay. Um, I'll, it'll be like a cute local London party. So far, I've done them at Toller and Peckham because I love how it is a local. Mm -hmm. Like. You have walk-ins of people that live in the neighborhood. There's this guy, I've seen him like five times there. So he clearly goes every Friday or something. Love that. And yeah, you know, and I want to, um, I still want to do all those things that I've been doing. Mm -hmm. I just want to, I'm just aware of my scale, of the scale that works for me. Yeah. And um, I think there's that. And then there's this, this desire to like do other things, you know, with my time. And I think, you know, I think you and I are quite similar in the fact that we're quite, we're quite homey, like we're home buddies. Mm -hmm. um, we do jobs that actually require quite a bit of isolation. Like mm -hmm. if you want to write, if you want to make music, you actually have to be kind of alone for a little bit. I'm alone a lot of the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And like, um, and all those things. And I think I'm, I'm at the point now where I just want to make more things yeah. and less, like I want to make more things and make less content. If you know what I mean, like, and Amen. right now it feels like, you know, right now it feels like DJ sets, radio shows, uh, music at large I'm is just content. content. Yeah. I mean, I think you could say that about a lot. Everything. Everything. Unfortunately. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's a difficult one to resist or even navigate like the pressure to churn it out. Even if you're not even about that life. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think either of us would identify as a content creator. No, but I'm means. sure we would be described as such by younger people. Well, I definitely have become aware that like the way that other people perceive what I put out, they expect me to do it on the schedule of a content creator. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I know I make content. I'm making content right now. <laughs> but I that's not that's not how I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to have conversations or yeah. I just want to write newsletters or I just want to host events. Like I'm not like, oh, okay, I'm on a content schedule. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you. I'm the same, but that's what I mean by like the world's agenda and my agenda don't really match up anymore. Mm. 
and I don't really fit in with the world's agenda as it is right now. And I don't, I'm also just too old to want to fight it. Yeah. It's a hard one though, I think for millennials, because we kind of grew up with one system in place and then it like buckled underneath our feet. And then it was kind of like, you know, obviously we've, I'd say we're pretty, we were pretty adept at using Instagram, for example, but Mm -hmm. now everyone's like, you have to be on TikTok. And, and like, I'm like, okay, wow, this is how it happens. I don't want to be on TikTok actually. You do not need to be on TikTok. You don't need to do anything. And I think that's the problem. Again, it's the one narrative culture, right? It's the kind of like, um, yeah, that instinct of like the herd herd instinct. Like you have to flock to wherever everyone's flocking or you'll be left out. But guess what? Like I've never engaged in Spotify. Like I've been anti-Spotify almost since the get-go. It is true. I am not missing out on On anything. Very anti-Spotify. Do you know, like, and I don't feel like I've missed out on anything. Like, of course, of course, whatever cream rises to the top will get to me. Yeah. I don't need to be in that closed captive environment with all the noise that comes with it Mm -hmm. and its own set of rules and architecture to navigate in order to access music that I can potentially fall in love with. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Like I've made sure that I'd always find new music and it's out there. It's just the, because you can get it fed to you, people just genuinely got lazy Mm -hmm. and I don't blame them. You know, I'm lazy with cars now with Uber with delivery stuff like I'm terrible with gorillas I'm so sorry I'm just gonna say it like gorillas footprint is hot <laughs> but you know what I mean like there's there's the human nature is a bit lazy yeah so I don't blame I never blame users or consumers I always just blame the corporation's agendas mm. and Spotify in theory could have been like an amazing platform, but they decided to sign a deal with the devil, um, with majors and with people whose incentive is to make profit for more boards of old crusty white men Mm -hmm. and not for musicians. Mm -hmm. So you're fucked because now AI can generate fake Drake songs, fake The Weeknd songs, fake Dua Lipa songs or whatever. And majors have zero copyright over it. Mm. So now, you you know, Universal has just bought off an AI company to try and make, they say it's to use the technology to make like ambient sounds, whatever. But we all know that's not true. They're just trying to, they're basically just trying to buy the future Mm. before it arrives so that they can control it and they can lobby for regulators in their favor. That's the only thing that's going on. But that's like, but that's you know, again, no one cares about that stuff because it's behind the scenes industry shit, but yeah. I, that's always been my bag. Like yeah. I've seen this shit happen. And because I know people who love music, who work at labels and stuff like that, they're too busy loving music. They're too busy trying to make an artist a rising star or have a hit or whatever to like analyze the industry in which they're taking part in. Mm but I can, I have so much time, you know? Mm. So I get to break it down, think about it in a million ways, read all the newsletters and the articles and be angry. <laughs> and um, your career as a music industry whistleblower <clears throat> has definitely c- commenced. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, at this point, I don't want to be angry anymore. I just want to disengage. 
I think I spent the last 15 years living that transient life, collecting friends, collecting music, like Pokemon. And now I'm realizing I don't need, I've moved to London. I am in the place where music comes to you. I don't need to travel anymore. It is everywhere around me. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere in my home. It's everywhere within my friends. It's everywhere within the spaces I go to, the places I inhabit, the even the restaurants I eat at care about the music, care about the sound. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to travel and go fetch it anymore. I'm I'm here. I've arrived. Like it's here. I'm, I'm here. I don't need to. I think that's been the most freeing thing was to realize that music is in me now. Like I don't, I take it everywhere I go, Mm -hmm. but I also live in it. So Mm -hmm. I don't need, I don't have the same kind of drive. I don't have the same, yeah, void to fill. (laughs) Well, I'm glad London has has filled that for you. Go London. Go London. (laughs) Go go London. Um, Just before we wrap up quickly, Louise, did you get a chance to think about some books? Yes, I did. Oh my God. Um, So... The book that lately I've been recommending to a lot of my friends. Yeah. It's a memoir. He just won the Pulitzer Prize for. Oh, did he? He did, yeah. Hua Su. Yeah. Um, his memoir is called Stay True. And talking about someone who uses music as currency and as a language, yeah. there's a man that uses it perfectly with yeah. incredible timing and nuance and the. It's 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 funny because it's, it, there's so much of his experience, even though we're not the same age, we didn't grow up in the same place. There's so much of his like Asian American experience that is very similar to mine. Uh-huh. Um, his relationship with his dad, like they would fax each other um, news and he would put notes about like, oh, I listened to that Nirvana album, whatever. Yeah. And I, that was, my dad and I communicated through cassette tapes and music yeah. and movies and pop culture. Yeah, You know, that's also why I, I think I adopted it as a language mm-hmm. very much. Um, but yeah, that book, Stay True. It, I don't think I've ever read a book with this many like dog ears. No. Um, many passages where I was like, wow, I could really that should be tattooed on my brain um and i'll say i'll say this he it's very it's a very rare feat to read a book and it manages to articulate feelings and experiences that you have had yourself better than you would yourself Mm -hmm. and this book does that for me it articulates certain situations and feelings and emotions and needs um, better than I could ever express myself. Of a great writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it's not my life, mm-hmm. you know. But when you re- when I read it, it felt like he was describing mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. um, and my life in many ways. Like I related to him in so many levels, mm-hmm. and he's become a bit of a friend now. Mm-hmm. He asked me. He actually asked me to DJ the launch of his. Oh, wow. But yeah, his launch party in New York last September, but I couldn't make it in the end. And I don't think they had like, just couldn't make it happen. Um, but I would have loved to do that. So maybe, maybe the next one, who maybe knows? Another one. Maybe London, some sort of London event. And did you have um, a book that you'd recommend to everyone? My Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Oh yeah, that's a great book. Because, um, same thing, this woman 
I don't think there's a book that I can, that frames overcoming, the act of overcoming in a more, uh, I'm trying to find like the right words to describe it, but she just, just the way it's, there's nothing heroic about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I love about Joan Didion's book of writing is that it's, the heroicism mm. doesn't come from like epic actions. Mm -hmm. It actually comes from very, very small admissions mm. of like daily life and just surrendering. Mm -hmm. And I don't, yeah. And I just, I don't think there's anything more beautiful than no finding solace in knowing that very small actions of surrender and tenderness daily can help you overcome even the biggest grief that's a beautiful review Louise <laughs> on that note with the bells chiming the bells <laughs> a bit of uh, yeah that's a pretty intense backdrop thank you so much for no thank the time you and for sharing your brilliant brain I don't I mean everyone who knows you knows you've got a brilliant brain but maybe some people who just think you're a fab club DJ which you absolutely are oh, but you've also got a very inquisitive analytical brilliant mind so i'm looking forward to see how you use it next it's the only one i speak to you phoebe <laughs> yeah right all right thanks luke